It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I had an absolutely surreal morning yesterday. I got up early. I got in my car. It was pouring here in Washington. I drove to work. I parked. I put on my mask. I went upstairs into the Washington Bureau of Fox News. And while that may not sound very unusual, I had not done that for more than a year. For a year, I've basically been doing media buzz from my basement. Uh, there was a few weeks where we were up on a roof on a nearby building and it got windy and cold and it was kind of a disaster. Um, and I must confess, although there are all kinds of technical issues when you do this at home, and I always, and we've had snafus where you, I, we briefly get knocked off the air, uh, you're always concerned that something's going to go very, very wrong. I mean, you know, your Wi-Fi goes out, the electricity flickers, you name it. So I felt at least I would stay on the air. But, you know, you, you see people that you haven't seen for a year. The place is still basically a ghost town. And, in fact, I, I mean, I had trouble finding the bathroom. And that's not a commentary on my mental acuity. Uh, about three-quarters of the Fox area of the building is under construction. So everything's been moved. The bathroom's in a new place. There was a new small studio that I was using. The bigger studio is not quite done. That should be ready in a couple of weeks. Uh, but still, you know, all the COVID protocols are in place. I'm in the studio by myself with a robot camera. We're not at a point yet where we can have guests in the studio. Uh, and you know, we're not going back to work till at least September. Uh, I think that's true in the New York offices of Fox as well. But just being there, there was just a lot to adjust to. And I kind of remembered the things I liked about, you know, being in a newsroom and seeing other people and having adult company. Uh, but I did... Uh, much prefer the commute at home because when the show was over, I would just come upstairs and have lunch. And now it's like, you know, it's about a 30, 40 minute drive depending on traffic. So like, why aren't I home yet? So uh, I, it's sort of like, you know, blinking in the sun, remembering that there's a whole world out there, neighborhoods I used to drive through every day and get stuck in traffic. The traffic isn't as bad right now, but that may come back. So that was my morning. Hope you had a chance to see the show. Uh, just looking at the headlines this morning, this huge mega skyscraper sized ship uh, that has been blocking traffic in the Suez Canal looks like it's almost freed. They've gotten it sort of floating, but not quite free. And I don't know, I haven't read the avalanche of coverage here, but did anybody think to ask whether it was a good idea to have a ship that massive Go in the Suez Canal where its length itself, you know, twice the uh, length of the Washington Monument, could actually shut down global supply lines. Maybe, you know how when you go over a bridge and there's a thing that says, you know, no trucks over uh, 10 tons or whatever it is are allowed on this bridge. Maybe that rule should have been in effect for Suez. I don't know. I'm not an expert on this. I'm just a guy with a podcast. And speaking of that, I saw a story today that made me kind of cringe because I remember what happened 17 years ago. If you're a teenager or younger, you don't know anything about this. And this is in certain eastern states. And it just so happens that Washington, D.C. is one of the epicenters. It's the cicadas. They're coming back. Now, if you've never even heard of the cicadas, they're these little bugs and they live, it's kind of a just bizarre scenario. They live underground for 17 years. The last time they came out was 2004. George W. Bush was running for re-election. Uh, the Boston Red Sox were on the way to winning the World Series for the first time in 86 years. And in about a month or so, they're coming back. Now, they're not 
harmful. They don't like sting anybody. They're just sort of on the ground. But together, they make can make, particularly at night, a kind of a deafening noise, louder than crickets that you've heard. So that's annoying. But also, they're just everywhere. They're kind of disgusting and underfoot. I mean, you walk on them, you kind of crush them, you try to avoid them, but there's so many of them in certain areas of the sidewalk that they just kind of form a carpet. Uh, little kids are fascinated by it and pick them up and try to figure out what's going on. So I can't say I'm looking forward to the return of the cicadas, but... You know, given all the plagues we've had, coronavirus and everything else, you know, why not? It just seems like this would be the time to have cicadas. Hey, I saw a, uh item on Showbiz 411. Um, you know, there's this big, I haven't really got into this, but there's this big HBO documentary on Woody Allen and the long-ago allegations of uh, child molestation, which he has always vigorously denied. So I saw a headline, you know, Woody Allen interview with CBS and it sounded like he had made a decision to respond to this series. But what actually happened is last summer, uh, CBS Sunday Morning interviewed Woody Allen. It was tied to the release of, release of his memoir. Nothing to do with this recent thing because it's almost a year ago. But it never ran. And now nine months later, it has finally surfaced, but not on CBS Sunday Morning. It is surfacing on CBS's um, subscription streaming service, Paramount Plus. Um, the Woody Allen people had no idea this was happening. Woody's sister and producer, Letty Aronson, telling Showbiz 401, they lied to us month after month, finally breaking their word that it would be about Woody's career and new book and play with absolutely no controversy. Um And what about, you know, now that they're charging for this online, any money involved? And she emailed back, and he's not getting paid. Um, this may be a problem. It could be argued that CBS fold a fast one on Woody, acting duplicitously and disingenuously. You know, if you do an interview with a CBS program, first of all, you don't expect them to sit on it for nine months. And second of all, you don't expect it then to be hawked on a subscription service where they're not even really promoting it. So anyway, that's the latest on that. Well, let's get down to some serious business here. I want to start out the latest poll about President Biden, because that will lead us into a, a deeper look at kind of a snapshot of the Biden presidency. We'll have all points of view in this segment. So there's a new poll out, ABC News and Ipsos, that says that 72% of those questioned approve of Joe Biden's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. That's up from 68% said the same just earlier this month. So it was already high, and now it's monumentally high. I mean, 72% approval of a politician for anything these days is quite stunning. Um, the earlier poll was before Congress passed the $1.9 trillion you know, economic relief package, which is controversial. It's got a lot of stuff in there that the Republicans object to that are not strictly related or related at all uh, to COVID-19. But in this ABC poll, only 28% disapprove of Biden's uh, handling of the pandemic. Now, how about the distribution of vaccines? In this same poll, three out of four Americans approve. More than a third of the population, the adult population, I should say, has received at least one dose, according to CDC. Uh, Biden, at his presser last week, uh, said uh, he's raising the goal to 200 million doses in his first 100 days. Originally, it had been 100 million doses. 
And by the way, in the ABC survey, 60% of Americans approve of Biden's handling of the economy. Nearly 4 in 10 Americans disapprove. So you wonder, okay, so what's the partisan breakdown? Um, 9 out of 10 Democrats approve of his handling of the pandemic. That's 96%. 92% approval among Dems for the vaccine delivery. 89% economic response. I mean, for a guy who was once written off by his party after he got clobbered in the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary, he's got remarkable unity among Democrats. And I have to say, Donald Trump had remarkable unity among Republicans, at least when he was running. Um, strong majorities of independents approved Biden in the 70s and, and one in the 60s on those three questions I just mentioned. Um, and the poll says that a majority of Republicans, 53%, approve of Biden's handling of vaccine distribution. Fewer than half, though, 44%, uh, say yes to his his response to the pandemic on the economy, which is a more standard thing, only 23%. But that vaccine number is really something, especially given all the frustrating delays that people in many, many, many states have had. You know, if you're not over 75, now over 65, you don't, uh, not a frontline worker, you don't have some horrible pre-existing condition. It's been really, really hard to get this vaccine. That is starting to change, but it hasn't changed yet. Now, the poll also has some bad news for President Biden. Um, he is underwater, as the pollsters say, on two issues. 57% of Americans disapprove of his handling of gun violence after the two mass shootings. I, I can't say I'm surprised because what has he done? He said he wants to get some measures passed, but he's also kind of signaled um, by talking about timing that's not going to be a top priority right now in the sense that he's going to put everything else aside. Also, the same number, 57% of Americans in this ABC poll disapprove of his handling of the border crisis, the surge of migrants across the U.S.-Mexico border. And so, you know, it, like with any president, you know, you approve of certain things, you don't approve of certain things. Um, and I think, you know, to some extent, he is benefiting from a sense of relief that, you know, what has Joe Biden talked about every single day, day in and day out, even if he's given a speech on something else? It's, it's the virus. It's the vaccines. It's people staying safe. Uh, and I think that's gotten through. And I think he's gotten credit. And, you know, I don't understand. And, you know, you can argue with any poll. Maybe these numbers are off. Maybe the numbers aren't as good. But, you know, there's been a whole bunch of polls. And generally, Biden on overall approval has been a bit over 50%, which in these polarized times is not bad. I've seen polls in, in recent weeks as high as 60%. Again, you can quibble with the methodology and so forth. But when I see uh, people who were not fans of Biden, you know, people on the conservative side, people who wanted Donald Trump to win, including some people who think that Donald Trump really did win, and we'll come back to that later in the podcast, um, and they say Biden's doing a terrible job, he's confused, he's addled, he's just going to be there for a few months till Kamala Harris takes over, he doesn't know what he's doing. I don't understand. I mean, that is kind of, you don't have to approve what he's doing. Maybe you think everything he's doing is radical, liberal, Bernie Sanders, AOC stuff. Maybe you think he's not a strong leader. Maybe you think he's too old for the job at 78. I can understand those things. But, you know, if you watch that news conference, even though I've been highly critical of the reporters, most of whom went, whom went pretty easy on the new president, I mean, Biden understands the issues. He's, as he said, you know, he'd been in the Senate for 120 years. Um, he does get tangled up in his own words at times. He does go into rhetorical cul-de-sacs at times. But 
for a guy who's been there for two months, I mean, he's not doing a horrible job. It may well be that uh, that six months from now, this all looks different. Maybe he overreaches. Maybe you know this new three trillion dollar uh, in dollars in spending that he wants uh, on on economic equality and infrastructure and so forth. Maybe that won't happen. Maybe it will happen and it will prove to be unpopular. I mean, a lot of things can go wrong, as we see with the situation at the border. But the idea that this guy has no idea what he's doing, I mean, obviously, after eight years as vice president, he came in, he knew what he wanted to do. And yes, he, 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 where he has fallen short is on the subject of national unity because he got zero Republican votes for his coronavirus package. The people who like the president say, look, he was smart. Republicans were never going to play ball with him and he needed to push it through and he did. The people who are not fans of this president say, what happened to all the talk of bipartisanship? Well, you know, he, he says he still wants that. The Republicans have to decide if they want to reach reasonable compromises. And the Biden team has to decide, you know, is it just going to basically pay lip service to the question of bipartisanship? But in a kind of an interesting moment, I found this clip at the last moment. We played a short bit of it uh, uh, on Media Buzz yesterday. Saturday Night Live finally had the guy who plays Biden playing Biden. And it was making fun of him. He came in, Kamala Harris was hosting a Seder on what the premise was. And he comes in and he said, you know, uh, my critics said I couldn't get through a whole news conference. And he looks at a note card. But I guess I did okay, he reads off the card, because he got some flack from that. That's the worst thing he does as president. Fine. Okay, Washington Post has a kind of favorable story saying this is the Obama do-over presidency. Um, The Post recalling that Barack Obama kept his stimulus package under $1 trillion under pressure from both parties. Joe Biden launched his presidency by spending about $2 trillion, and he wants to take it to $5 trillion with these other things that I mentioned. Obama spent months negotiating with Republicans. Thirsty for a bipartisan credential never came. Biden nodded to the opposition party and then pushed his agenda without them. Again, you can well, what you think about that may depend on what your own political predilections are. Opening months of the Biden administration have provided the Democratic Party with a rare do-over, a chance to enact wide-ranging agenda items far more quickly and on a larger scale than in 2009, Barack's first year. Surrounded by, this is interesting, surrounded by many of the same top aides who worked in the Obama White House, in fact, of the 50 most important jobs, uh, about 80% either worked for the Obama White House or the Obama campaign. Um, so the piece says that Obama thought good policy would sell itself. Biden's aides say that he designed his package around pieces that sell well, including the easy-to-understand ideas of $1,400 stimulus check payments and vaccines. Yeah, if the government is giving you money, that does tend to sell pretty well. The question is, and the question now for Biden and the Democrats on this next phase is how do you pay for it? Because you cannot keep printing money. You can't keep borrowing money forever. So now we get into the, oh, they want to tax wealthy people and they want to raise the corporate tax rates, which had been about 35% uh, at the end of the Obama years. Trump got it down to 21%. Now some Biden people are saying, well, we should raise it, but we're not back to where it was before. Maybe we raise it to 25. So all these things are going to be debated. Leon Panetta, who was Obama's defense secretary and Bill Clinton's chief of staff, said the biggest danger for Joe Biden, quoted in this piece, is wanting to move very fast without bringing the American people with him in terms of some of these objectives. And that is true. 
you know, he had a mandate, I believe, given the severity of the virus, which has now killed 550,000 Americans and is not over yet, if you look at the numbers. Uh, he had a mandate to move quickly uh, in a national emergency. But if he starts doing other things and doesn't bring public opinion along, well, that's called overreach. And speaking of that, give you another viewpoint, National Review, Matthew Cotnetti. Um, he starts out by talking about uh, how Joe Biden, I mentioned this on the podcast, I believe Friday, uh, recently and privately met, according to Axios, with a whole group of historians. It was Michael Beschloss and John Meacham, Michael Eric Dyson, Walter Isaacson, who am I leaving out here, Doris Kearns Goodwin. They all happen to be TV pundits who are very sympathetic to Joe Biden and were not fans of President Trump. So, you know, I mean, Biden, curious, very, you know, genuinely curious to talk about the FDR presidency and the Lincoln presidency and so forth, because he sees himself as somebody who wants to go big. That's the importance of that story. Same time, he was working the pundits, working the pundits who write books and who are basically known most often as presidential historians. So, Axios reported that Biden, quote, loves the growing narrative that he's bolder and bigger thinking than President Obama, according to Mike Allen in Axios. Now, the same wonks and historians who once compared Obama, you know, to people like FDR, and I wrote about this at the time, it was so over the top, it was unbelievable. Uh, they are now downplaying his tenure as overly cautious, modest, and risk-averse. Obama may not be thrilled about that. They've settled on a new FDR, Joe Biden. And Biden is ready to play the part, even if it means risking Democratic control of Congress. So here's the argument that Continenti makes. Um, if you look at history, and this is true, I mean, Reagan was remembered as this fabulously successful president. Uh, in the 1982 midterms, his first midterms, didn't do so well. Uh, Obama, uh, loved by the left, at least he used to be, you know, gets elected the candidate of hope and change in 2008, America's first African-American president. And in 2010, he gets clobbered in the midterms. And then in 2014, the next midterms after he's reelected, it's clobbered again, ultimately losing control of both the Senate and the House. So what uh, national, this National View piece says is this could happen to Biden as well, even though he seems to be riding high now. He says... The historians urging Biden to go big on policy aren't analysts, they're partisan cheerleaders. If they step back, they would see that Biden is weaker than the presidents he admires, and vulnerable Democrats are warning the majority against overreach. Now, that is true. There's some moderate Democrats out there. Well, Joe Manchin's the most uh, high-profile example because he's the key swing vote in the Senate, who, who aren't for aggressive action on gun control who have reservations about raising taxes too much. I mean, raising taxes on the most wealthy Americans has always been kind of a Democratic platform plank. Um, but if you look at it's a 50-50 Senate uh, in the House, Biden's party has turned at 19, which is just about six or seven seats more. Oh, you, can only, you can only lose two seats in the lower chamber. Uh, so, in other words, it wouldn't be, it's not really that much of a stretch to feel like, especially since a president's party almost always loses seats in the first midterm, that the Republicans could end up controlling the House after 2022. Uh, so the conclusion here is parties win, you know, and that this has been true uh, of both Democrats and Republicans. Parties win elections, misread electoral victories as ideological endorsements, overreach, and pay for it at the polls. I do seem to recall uh, Donald Trump 
losing the midterms in 2018 and the Democrats taking back the House. Uh, the Democrats, for whom the bill will come due first, are well aware of this dynamic. So we shall see. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. So I want to get to a few other things here. Um, I mentioned on my program yesterday, and on the podcast as well, that Donald Trump had called into Laurie Ingram's show. I guess this was Thursday night. And among other things, he defended the protesters at the Capitol on January 6th, and he said they posed zero threat. He did say, well, the rioters shouldn't have done it, but he said zero threat. They were hugging and kissing people. They meant no harm. And I'm thinking, like, why, why is he going there? Why is he saying this? I mean, it's a day, to borrow FDR, since we were just talking about him, that will live in infamy, the, the violence and the vandalism at the Capitol. Now, I agree. Some of the hundreds of people were there. They were just there to protest. They didn't try to break police lines. They didn't attack police officers. They didn't go into the Capitol and engage uh, in all kinds of crazy stuff. They didn't shout, hang Mike Pence, but a lot of them did. There have been more than 400 um, arrests. And a police officer died. We don't know exactly how he died, but if there hadn't been the Capitol riot, I think it's safe to say that Brian Sicknick would still be alive. Mick Mulvaney, the former chief of staff to President Trump, uh, and on CNN, he said, I was surprised to hear the president say that. Clearly, there were people there who were behaving themselves, and then there were people who absolutely were not. Well, then he said, to come out and say that everybody was fine and there was no risk is just, that's manifestly false, says Donald Trump's former chief of staff. People died, he said. Other people were severely injured. To say there was no risk is just wrong. And on Media Buzz, former Democratic governor of Pennsylvania, Ed Rendell, former head of the DNC, said he thought that was the worst thing that Donald Trump has ever said, even going back to his comments at Charlottesville, and the stupidest thing Rendell said. Now, I got a lot of flack, like, why did you let him say that about Charlottesville? Very fine people on both sides. Because he's a Democratic partisan who is on to give his opinion. Trump did say those things. You could say it was misinterpreted by the media. That's fine. Um, there, there are just people who don't like to hear other points of view, who often troll me online, and that's fine. They can do whatever they want. Uh, I pressed Rendell. In fact, I, I talked to him about Fox and the fact that the, the news conference where um, all the networks got called on, CNN, NBC, ABC, CBS, but not Peter Ducey from Fox. And Rendell said that that was idiotic on President Biden's part. And he knows Biden, and he's a big Biden supporter. He said that Fox News is, is a very important outlet. It's got a big audience. Not everybody who watches Fox is a conservative, and all that is true and that he should call on Fox in the future. So some unsolicited advice from the former governor of Pennsylvania. Uh, now I want to get to the COVID story, because speaking of people coming out who had worked in the Trump administration, uh, Deborah Burks, who was the coronavirus coordinator, uh, she was on this uh, coronavirus special on CNN interviewed by Sanjay Gupta, and she came out and said, look, uh, the first time we have an excuse. There were about 100,000 deaths that came from the original surge. All the rest of them, in my mind, could have been mitigated or decreased substantially. So she's finally now, out of office, distancing herself from the decisions of the Trump administration, of which she was a part. She was told that she couldn't go on national TV at certain points because the president might see it. But a lot of people, you know, unlike Fauci, who clearly disagreed with Trump and got a lot of abuse from the 45th president for it, um, Burks never really spoke out, and she even wanted to stay on with Biden. That wasn't happening. And a lot of people felt like she should have spoken out or she should have quit. 
So now she's trying to obviously restore her reputation. Hey, a couple other things I touched on the show. I talked uh, on the podcast about Sharon Osbourne. Well, now she is leaving. She's been forced out by CBS from the daytime show The Talk, wife of Ozzy. This all had to do with the on-air meltdown she had over Meghan Markle, Piers Morgan, and race. I knew she wasn't long for that show when she did a couple of interviews and started dropping F-bombs and started talking about how unfairly she was treated. CBS put out a statement saying, well, yeah, the producers were kind of at fault too, but it was upsetting to everyone involved, the comments that Sharon Osbourne made. Her behavior did not align with our values for a respectful workplace. Now, CBS did not address the allegations from former staffers that Sharon Osbourne in the past had uttered racial slurs, which she vigorously denies. Uh, she's gone from the talk now after 11 years. I think we'll be hearing more from her in the future. In fact, I'd wager a good amount of money on that. Also, USA Today fired its race and inclusion editor, a woman named Hamal Javeri, for tweeting right after the Boulder supermarket shootings that it's always an angry white man, always, except it's not always. It wasn't. The suspect turned out to be a Muslim from Syria. So, she, go, she gets fired by USA Today. She goes on Medium, I think it was. She blames her ouster on alt-right Twitter. But then Javeri says, you know, she apologized. was a careless error of judgment. Sent at a heated time that doesn't represent my commitment to racial equality. Okay, like everybody makes mistakes. She lost her job. But then in this same post, she then pivots to complaining that white supremacy permeates American newsrooms and that USA Today is subservient to white authority. Well, no, you made a dumb mistake. You said something that turned out not to be true, and now you're blaming white supremacy? Uh, I just thought that looked and sounded really bad. I mean, this is a newspaper that employed you, that gave you a job, that let you write and cover uh, race and diversity, and now, because of your own mistake, you lose your job. Maybe the punishment was too harsh. I can understand, you know, feeling bitter about that. And then you kick that newspaper in the teeth. Sorry, I'm not down with that. Hey, uh, New York Times, uh, just wrap this up here. It has a big piece about, well, it starts up with New York, naturally, Manhattan, and what's going to happen to all the office space there. The lead is about Spotify, which has about 16 floors in number four World Trade Center in lower Manhattan. Um, and its offices will probably never be full again. Spotify has told employees they can work anywhere, even in another state few doors down, a few floors down in that building, Media Math, advertising tech company, is going to abandon its space. Uh, in Midtown Manhattan, Salesforce, whose name is actually on the building uh, overlooking Bryant Park that's down around 42nd Street, expect workers to be in the office just maybe one to three days a week. Um, and what's happening is, because of the pandemic, all these big, huge companies found out, hey, you know, we can get by just fine with a lot less office space and people working at home isn't so bad. So some of them will continue to allow people to work at home. Some will say, look, you got to come in a day a week, two days a week, three days a week. Clearly, there won't be the demand for the level of office space. And it's not just New York. Uh, this is, is going to be a problem for the commercial real estate and, and for corporate America here in Washington and in some other major cities as well. Uh, the story also says that a major corporation such as Ford Motor in Michigan, Target in Minnesota, saying they're giving up significant office space. Why? Because they can save a lot of money. And it's just one of these things where the unintended effect of us, everybody hunkering down for a year because of the fears of COVID-19, have shown corporate America that there's another way to do business and it might be more efficient. 
So the good side of that is if people get to spend more time at home with their families, they don't have to spend clog the roads with so much traffic and pollution. The downside is, you know, I mean, I think something's lost when you don't collaborate uh, with other people. And uh, if you're in the real estate business, then you got a real downside. Hey, one more thing I want to get to here, story on Vox about Amazon. You know, Amazon uh, is facing a union organizing vote this week for one of its facilities in Alabama. And if that place or votes to unionize, you can sure it's going to be spread like Wi-Fi. Well, Amazon, which usually keeps a pretty low corporate profile, not so much Jeff Bezos, but Amazon just, at Bezos's order, according to Vox, he didn't do it through the Washington Post, which is editorially independent, I believe, not necessarily on the editorial page where it is a publisher and owner's right uh, to dictate policy, but in the newspapers. Anyway, so Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, two ultra-liberal Democrats, have been out there criticizing Amazon over its labor practices. I mean, Elizabeth wants to break up Facebook, so you're not surprising there. And so uh, Amazon fought back on its official company Twitter. Uh, a lot of people saying, what's up with this? So according to Vox, uh, Bezos expressed dissatisfaction that company officials were not more aggressive. So when news broke that Bernie Sanders was going to go to Alabama to support the union organizing drive, a top Amazon executive named Dave Clark fired off a Twitter that said, I welcome Senator Sanders to Birmingham, appreciate his push for a progressive workplace. I often say that we are the Bernie Sanders of employers, but that's not quite right because we actually deliver a progressive workplace. So taking a little shot at Bernie there. And then there's a, a congressman uh, named Mark Pocan who had questioned uh, this progressive workplace uh, assertion by saying, well, you know, Amazon is really tough to work there and uh, some work, they're so demanding that some workers have to urinate in water bottles. That has been reported. So the Amazon, again, the official Twitter account tweets back, you don't really believe the peeing and bottles thing, do you? If that were true, nobody would work for us. Well, apparently it's occasionally been true. And then Elizabeth Warren, there was this exchange, and Amazon quote tweeted her. Uh, I didn't write the loopholes you exploit, Amazon. Your armies and lawyers of lawyers and lobbyists did. But you bet, says Elizabeth, I'll fight to make you pay your fair share of taxes, that is, and fight your union busting and fight to break up big tech so you're not powerful enough to heckle senators with snotty tweets. All right, I'm sure some of Senator Warren's fans cheered that on. So Amazon quotes all that on Twitter and says, this is extraordinary and revealing. One of the most powerful politicians in the United States just said she's going to break up an American company so they can't criticize her anymore. Well, let the games begin. This is heating up, and I kind of like it. Hope you had a good weekend. Again, hope you had a chance to see the show. You can subscribe here on any number of places on your Amazon device, at Google Podcasts, at uh, Apple iTunes, Amazon Music, the aforementioned Spotify. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. 